I say Merry Christmas because, again, Christmas has come and Christmas has gone. Almost in the blink of an eye, the lights go up in the shopping centers and then they come down. I could probably say the same about prices, but that also is neither here nor there. Christians love the Christmas season. It's a season full of daily reminders that our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to us. It's a season of thankfulness where we have time to slow down, look around us, and take note of things we ought to be thankful for, gifts from God himself in our lives. It's even a season where doing good works for others is socially acceptable, like making dinner or giving gifts. For these reasons, I love Christmas. Everything we celebrate every Sunday shows up in the public square for about a month and a half because some people like to start early. But I think there's a fundamental flaw with the Christmas season. It doesn't last. It's fleeting. Some people spend their whole year waiting for the Christmas season, waiting for Christmas Day, because they find so much security in a day that doesn't last. Perfectly wrapped gifts under a perfectly lit tree with Extremely overly filled stockings over a chimney fireplace. It's the pinnacle moment of the year that we have waited for, and it all goes away. It doesn't bring the security that people long for, that they look to it for. But just like every year, the family wakes up, everybody tears open their gifts, They have a nice Christmas breakfast, and that's it. Christmas Day comes, and Christmas Day goes. It's temporary. You will never find eternal security in temporary things. Over the past several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together, considering what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, our only mediator before God. And Pastor Mike has pointed out several helpful truths over the past couple weeks in Hebrews 4 and in Hebrews 7 about Jesus' work as our great high priest before God. If you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to do so. I pray the Lord would use those to edify you and encourage you. So please do so this week for the benefit of your soul. But this morning, we'll be in Hebrews 8. As you turn there, it's important to remember the recipients of this sermon were Jewish Christians. Men and women who were ethnically Jewish and who once adhered to Judaism, but by the grace of God, they have now experienced the saving work of Jesus as their Messiah. To understand their experience, we have to understand that the life they lived, they lived in full exposure and saturation of the Old Covenant. Everything that they did. The Old Covenant dictated what they did, what they did not do, the things that they ate, what they didn't eat, the things that they wore, what they didn't wear, what they could do on certain days, what they couldn't do on certain days. You can see where it's difficult to pull away from that. And the author of Hebrews has been systematically pulling the Jenga blocks, so to speak, from under the supposedly faultless covenant. He's pulled the promises because Jesus has fulfilled them. He's pulled the priesthood because Jesus is a better high priest. And here in chapter 8, he latches on to two final blocks that I want us to see this morning. The tabernacle and the old covenant itself. As he pulls their sense of security and the old covenant begins to shake. 
We all know what happens when you pull that final fatal block of the Jenga block puzzle. Everything topples over. And so out of pastoral love and concern for these Christians, the author of Hebrews pulls the block. So let's read Hebrews 8 together. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we were to take a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of these Christians, we're forced to ask the obvious question. Why do they need to hear this? What lies were they being tempted to believe that rendered this an appropriate rebuttal to those temptations? What was the problem, and how was the author thus trying to point them to the truth that would solve that problem? I think the answer lies in the fact that these Christians were searching for security. Because think with me, you only search for things that you've lost or you don't have. So their searching for security reveals the absence of security. What kind of security were they looking for? Ultimately, it was security in their relationship with God. I wonder how many of us feel insecure in our relationship with God. Whether you perceive that is on God's side of things, or you perceive it to be on your side of things. I wonder who in here has lived in that insecurity for such a long time that it feels normal to live life on a pendulum of doubt and despair. I wonder who's lived that way for such a long time that it's just become normal and you feel numb. 
Is Jesus really a better anything to you? Do you feel just as downcast today, if not as much more as you did December 1st? And the only appropriate rebuttal to the temptations of an insecure human soul is this, friend. Only Jesus can offer eternal security. Nothing else. Only Jesus can offer you eternal security. He's the only one who has eternal security to give. And when I say eternal security, what I'm saying is the surety and the confidence that you are in a right relationship with God. The surety, the complete 100%, no doubt, without a doubt, I'm in a good relationship with God right now. Only Jesus can offer you that, nothing else. And he offers it to you by faith. These Hebrews have tasted of that eternal security that can only be found in Jesus. But just like the rest of us who come to the Lord Jesus, we bring our baggage with us. We know these temporary things won't last. We repent. We put our faith in him. He makes us brand new. All the while, sitting on the floor behind us is a bag full of temporary securities. Everything we used to put our hope in right there on full display. It just so happens that what showed up in their bag was the Levitical priesthood, the temple in Jerusalem, and the Mosaic law. I'm sure those who were tempting these Hebrews back into Judaism were arguing the necessity of the Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices for sins, the significance of God's temple in Jerusalem as God's dwelling place, and the finality of the Mosaic law. You can begin to see why it is so tempting to these Christians to return to the temporary. The more they looked in the bag, the more they remembered what it felt like. The more they looked, the more they saw things shimmer. And once in a while, the things that shimmered caught their eye. But let me tell you today, brother and sister, don't look back at that bag. The things shimmer, but they do not last. They are only temporary. Only Jesus can offer you eternal security. The author right here in chapter 8 wants more than anything to point these Hebrews to heaven. And I believe the Holy Spirit will help us this morning through his inspired word to look to heaven with them, to plant two foundational truths about Jesus in our hearts that give us eternal security. The first, Jesus ministers in heaven for you. And the second, Jesus mediates a better covenant for you. If we press these truths into our hearts and we let them take root, we will look nowhere else but only to Jesus for the security that we all long to feel, that we all desire. So first, Jesus ministers in heaven. In the first six verses, the author is making a significant contrast between where Jesus ministers as the great high priest and where the Levitical priests minister. The argument at this point, we can assume, sounds like this. Okay, you showed us that Jesus can be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, we see what you're saying. But he isn't serving in the temple. The Levitical priests are serving in the temple. They're the ones offering the sacrifice. Where does Jesus serve? If he's after the order of Melchizedek, what is he doing for us? Okay, I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks for bringing that up, guys. Look with me again at verse 2, 1 and 2. 
And might I say, God bless this man for writing that this is the main point, because sometimes that's all we need in the Bible is for something to say, this is the main point. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In and of themselves, these two verses serve not only to solidify Jesus' rightful place as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we talked about this the last two weeks, but also to highlight the significance of his position as the great high priest. Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here... The author points out that Jesus is, in fact, fulfilling this as we speak. He's fulfilled Psalm 110 in its entirety. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whose throne is the highest in all creation on earth and in heaven. There is no higher throne, no greater authority than our most high God, and Jesus is seated at his right hand. But not only is his position one of infinite authority, his position is in the immediate presence of God. Jesus ministers in heaven. He ministers in the holiest of holies because the true tabernacle, as we see here, in which he performs his priestly duties is in fact set up by God, not by man. The Lord raised this tabernacle and Jesus is a minister there, not here on earth. Then in verses 3 through 5, the author affirms their concerns. The question is legitimate. A priest is a priest to do his job, to offer gifts and sacrifices in the temple on behalf of the people. So in order for Jesus to appropriately function as a priest, it is necessary for him to have something to offer. Now before... In chapter 7, verse 27, the author touched at what Jesus offered. But we'll come back to that. But here, the Jenga block he's pulling is the place of the sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice itself. He wants to get at where this takes place. And it takes place in the presence of God. Not in accordance to the Mosaic law, which happened in the temple on earth. It happens in the presence of God. These people understood that God's presence, the way they understood it, God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies, which is why the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer the sacrifices for the people. But their understanding had to be fixed because God's dwelling place is in a heavenly tabernacle where moth and rust cannot destroy. So he concedes in verse 4, if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Well, there you go. There it is. We told you. He's not a good enough priest. Well, wait. There's something you don't know about your priesthood, your sacrifices, your temple. Verse 5, they serve as copies and shadows of heavenly things. Way back when God gave the law to Moses, it only served as a pattern. So let me illustrate this and its significance with Christmas ornaments. Most people buy ornaments, I say most people, 
because I bought an ornament of a beaver before, and that has no significance. Most people buy ornaments not because the ornament in and of itself is significant, but because the ornament points to something that is significant. We can all agree on that. My wife and I buy a new ornament every year that represents something significant that happened in our lives that particular year. So in 2018, we have a wedding cake. In 2019, we have a southern emblem. In 2020, we have a vacation to Gatlinburg. And this year, we were gifted with an ornament of two little twin boys because we had our boys this year. But when I look at these ornaments, they were never meant to stop me in my tracks and think, man, that's nice porcelain. That is some good paint. Good artistry. No, they are on my tree because they are designed to point me to a significant event. And that significant event brings me joy and it makes me happy and it gives me security. In this way, they serve as shadows of greater realities. Okay, in this way, the ornament serves as a shadow of a greater reality. Now, These Jews, they see the priests, they see the sacrifices, they see the temple. All of these things served as shadows of heavenly realities. They were never meant to be the main focus. They were always meant to point mankind to heaven. They pointed to the tabernacle set up by God and not by man. They pointed to the need for a great high priest, one who could satisfy the requirements of the law perfectly and at the same time, Offer a sacrifice that would pay the penalty we owed for our sin. Because we've broken God's commands. We stand before him. Guilty. And we stand having earned eternal judgment for our sins. Therefore, an eternal payment had to have been offered to atone for those sins. This eternal eternal debt cannot be satisfied by temporary things. The Jews were under the impression that the priests offered sufficient sacrifices in the presence of God that would fully and finally absolve them of their sin. God must be pleased with these offerings, right? But the author goes on to tell us in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, if these offerings were unacceptable to atone for sin in the presence of God, there still remains a need for a sacrifice. There still remains a need for a priest to stand in the presence of God. Another block pulled. You will never find eternal security in temporary things. Only the perfect blood of our perfect Savior poured out in the presence of an eternal God could forever wash us white as snow. This is why it is necessary for Jesus to minister in heaven. Because he is the great high priest and because back in Hebrews 7, 27, he has offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice once and for all. He has no need to repeatedly offer the same sacrifices year after year in a temple made by hands, but he's offered one sacrifice for eternity in heaven in the presence of God. He's done it. And because he's done it, we can have a right relationship with God. This is good news for you and I. 
the Jews under the Levitical priesthood, if they sinned, let me give you a snapshot. If they sinned, they had to go grab an unblemished bull or goat. They had to travel to the temple. They had to find the priest and confess their sin and give them the animal to be offered. Then the priest had to take the animal without making any mistakes. You had to... Uh, He followed these guidelines that were prescribed to him in the Mosaic law so that he could perform his duties in accordance with the law. Then he would offer up the animal on the altar. He would spill its blood everywhere. He would take some of that blood on his hands and put it in the appropriate places on the altar to make atonement for your sin. But we haven't even talked about the sacrifice he had to make for himself in order to do that because he himself is beset by weakness. But as it is, friends, We have an eternal, perfect high priest who serves perfectly in a better tabernacle in heaven in the exact immediate presence of God for you. He's in God's presence for you. He supplied a once for all perfect sacrifice for you. And he's in the presence of God right now ministering for eternity for you. This is why verse 6 says Jesus has obtained a superior ministry. Because his ministry is not a shadow. It's not a copy. It's the real eternal ministry in the presence of God for his people. And with it comes eternal security that right now your sins can be forgiven. The sins you committed before coming to Jesus. The sins that you commit after coming to Jesus, the sins you committed yesterday, this morning before you got here, on the way here, the sins you're committing right now, the sins you will commit tomorrow. All of those things paid in full. Jesus has paid for your sin and you can be forevermore forgiven and know without a shadow of doubt that you are in a right relationship with God. One day we will all die and we will stand in his presence. But in Christ, we know without a shadow of doubt that we are eternally secure and we can stand in God's presence clothed in Jesus' righteousness in full assurance of faith. Jesus' ministry is superior because it accomplishes its purpose. Let me ask you this morning, do you trust in Jesus for eternal security? Do you trust that Jesus alone could forgive you of the sins of your past, the sins of your present, and the sins of your future? Or are you looking somewhere else? Look for eternal security in the eternal, unchanging, solid work of Jesus for you in heaven. Don't look for things, security and things on earth. Alongside this reality is our second foundational truth from this text. The first was Jesus ministers in heaven for you. The second foundational truth here is Jesus mediates a better covenant for you. In the latter half of verse 6, the author takes hold of the final block. The superiority of Jesus' ministry has been made clear But now the author moves from contrasting the heavenly and the earthly to comparing the superiority of his priesthood to the superiority of the new covenant. 
And I think the NIV captures the meaning of this verse well. I'll read it here. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So not only is his ministry better, but the covenant he mediates is better because the promises in that covenant are better. That, to me, sounds like a note I would put in my margin. Jesus is better, better, better. Better, better, better. I told Mike I'd say that sounded like a Papa John's commercial. So I wanted to let that know. Let's take a closer look at verse 7. The author points out that the reason God had to make a new covenant was because the old covenant was faulty. Now, let's take a second. As we strive to be better Bible readers together, we cannot let difficult verses or passages like this, because it can be difficult, we don't need to let these things shake our trust in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Scriptures. So let's take this verse as an example and let's lean into it a little bit. I'm mostly pointing out the fact that it says if it wasn't faultless, we're thinking there's fault. We know from the rest of Scripture that this text cannot be saying God is at fault. Because God is as if God is in error. God cannot be in error because God is perfect and does not make mistakes. We also know from the rest of Scripture that this is most definitely not saying God has wronged mankind in some way. Because God is holy. It's not in his nature to wrong or sin against mankind. And the reason I bring this up is because verse 8 has been translated in several ways. So verse 8 doesn't necessarily help us to understand this, but I think the context of Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah help us here. So all in all, looking at verse 7, commentators disagree on where the fault is found. Some say it's in the covenant itself. Some say it's in the people. And ultimately their interpretation leads to the way that they translate it. But what it seems to me and what I would implore to you now is that the old covenant was faulty because the people broke their end of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28.9 says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. God made the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. As Hebrews 8 verse 9 says, when he took them out of the land of Egypt. But as we all know, as these Hebrews should have recalled, the people of Israel did not uphold their end of the covenant. And they didn't even uphold their end of the covenant the moment that they got it. Therefore, they broke the covenant. And when a covenant like this is broken, the covenanted partner was no longer obligated to abide by the agreed stipulations which in this case means God was no longer bound by or obligated to keep the old covenant with Israel, which makes sense of the second half of verse 9. Now, I had to share all this because there's three important things I want to point out. One, the law brought knowledge of sin. It was never designed to save because sinful human beings are unable to keep it. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. Number two, God is merciful and gracious. He proves that time and time again, especially here, since it would have been justified for him never to make another covenant with mankind again. And thirdly, 
There is no eternal security in the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant was made to function temporarily. Again, it was pointing to something greater, a greater need for God's people. These Hebrews needed to be reminded of these three truths because they were being tempted back under this yoke, which in and of itself had no security to offer because God found fault with it. And this was not hidden knowledge. This was revealed through one of their major prophets, Jeremiah, who spoke of a day that was coming where there would be a better covenant with better promises. How could they miss it? How could they miss it? Something that seems so clear right here. How could they miss it? Well, it seems obvious. Yes, but that's because we've slowed down to read for understanding. Let us not make the same mistake of forsaking the truths of Scripture out of ignorance or because we don't read them. And let's also be careful not to just skim through to complete a plan rather than slow down to internalize the Word of God. But back to verse 8, the Lord says He will make a new covenant. Verse 9, this covenant will be different than the covenant He made with Israel. And here in verses 10 through 12, we see the promises. So let's look and see these better promises in this better covenant. First, God will write His law on our minds and our hearts. Second, God will be our God and we His people, meaning He will put us in a right relationship with Himself. We will know Him personally. And third, God will completely forgive us our sins and forget about them. Notice, God will. God will. God will. He has made this covenant and He Himself will uphold it. During the old, the Mosaic law was written on tablets of stone. Those stones were broken when Moses witnessed the people worshiping a golden calf. So he had to go back up to the top of the mountain and get new ones made. Then he brought them down. Then the priests were supposed to write these things down and meditate on them. But these tablets were stored away in the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Covenant, the Lord will write these laws permanently on our hearts and our minds. That's way better. Under the old, the priests were supposed to meditate on these laws day and night. They were supposed to memorize the law from, front to, from top to bottom, from front to back. They were supposed to me- meditate on them day and night in order to keep them, but also not only to keep them, they were supposed to teach them to the people so that they, people could know the Lord. But under the new covenant, we will all know the Lord. Because he will make himself known to us. That's better. Under the old, the priests were obligated to offer daily sacrifices for the same sins over and over and over, every day, every week, every year, but the debt of sin could not adequately be paid. But under the new covenant, God himself is merciful toward our sins, and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. That's way better. These promises are better. These promises are secure. The faultiness of the old makes it obsolete. It's fleeting. It's going away. But the coming of the new offers permanence. And in that permanence, we can have confidence. You can have a right relationship with God. And that relationship can be immovable. Not dependent on you. An immovable right relationship with God. You can know that your sins are forgiven and forgotten. You can know that the debt you once owed to God will never again 
come against you. Never. You can know without a shadow of doubt that if you were to lose every single thing in your life, you would still have eternal security in the Lord Jesus. But you can only ever find that in the Lord Jesus himself. Nowhere else. Temporary things do not offer eternal security. Their hope, these Hebrews, in the old covenant was obsolete. Any security they might have thought was there is definitely gone now. The final block has been pulled. The tower is crashing down. The game is over. An old obsolete covenant isn't isn't it just faulty? It's gone. Now where is their security? The author is telling them, look, brothers and sisters, if you're tempted back, there's nothing there. There's nothing for you. What you think you had wasn't there to begin with. And what you thought you had even then is gone. What you have now, though, is eternal. Don't abandon the truth. But praise be to God. Praise be to God in heaven. Because he has made a new and better covenant. Through his son. Born in a manger over 2,000 years ago birthed into life so that he could lay his life down as an acceptable offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God, a sacrifice that would clear us of our guilt and shame now today and for eternity, and he would rise from the grave then to ascend into heaven where he now serves as our great high priest. He fulfills even now the promises of this new covenant and all that is required of you today is to recognize you need him. You've sinned against God. We all have. We wouldn't be in this room together if we didn't recognize that we were sinners in need of a Savior. But we don't have to stay sinners. The Scriptures tell us all that is required for us is to repent of our sins. You're going this way, trusting in yourself, living your life in your sin, and all he says is turn this way toward him. Put your faith in Jesus, the eternal high priest, for eternal security. He says that if we repent and put our faith in him, he will save us and save us to the uttermost. Jesus does fully and finally what those priests on earth could not do. He made the payment on the cross. He took death by the collar at his resurrection. And he's seated in heaven, ministering for us right now, forever. These things that these Christians were tempted with, the things that seemed to be the most foundationally sound, the things that allured their desire for security were in the end temporary. They were fleeting. Every single thing that held enough weight in their hearts drew them away from the Lord Jesus, but it couldn't stand. It couldn't stand in the end against him. It couldn't give them what they thought it could give them. And we can fall victim to the same temptation. It may not be temptations toward a life in Judaism. But who among us doesn't have that bag full of things lying behind us? 
that we used to put our security in before Jesus. It lays open. For some of us, it's closer and it's wide open. For others, it's a little farther away. But it lays open right there and sometimes it catches your eyes. But I said before, and I'll say it again, don't look. Don't look there for security. I want you, the author of Hebrews wants you to look to Jesus for security. These two foundational truths that we've talked about are the key to overcoming eternal insecurity. They're the key to finally putting false insecurities to death. So to end our time, let's look at the cause of eternal insecurity. And let's look at symptoms of eternal insecurity. I want to make these clear for you so that you can take these away from this text today. I want to leave you with some diagnostic questions, questions you can ask yourself, questions that you can ask a brother or sister in Christ to help you discern whether you are looking for security in Jesus or you're looking for security in temporary things. The big question, what is it in your life right now today, that if God took it away, everything would fall apart. Think about that. What is it in your life that if God took it away, if he pulled the Jenga block out of your life, what would he have taken away that causes your sense of of security to topple over to the ground? Be honest with yourself. If the answer is not Jesus then the answer is probably the thing that you're putting your security in. This is the cause of eternal insecurity, looking somewhere other than Jesus for it. This is a fight that Christians will face until the Lord returns because we are sinful. But maybe these questions can help us put this sin to death. So question number one, do you feel more secure when things are tangible? Do you feel more secure when things are tangible? Things you can touch, okay? Things you can see, material things that can be measured. After all, these Hebrews were being tempted with tangible things like the priests, the tabernacle, old covenant practices they did their entire life. Maybe for you this morning, you are tempted to find your security in your bank account or in your job or in your family or in your kids, things that can be seen things that can be touched. But this is a symptom of eternal insecurity. You can't touch Jesus, so somehow he seems less secure. But remember, Jesus is our eternal high priest, not temporary, eternal. And he's the mediator of a better covenant with better promises. Promises that he fulfilled himself. More secure than anything in this world. So, with tangibility, beware searching for eternal security and tangible earthly things because they do not last. Those things in and of themselves will never offer you eternal security. Money goes away, jobs can be lost, families grow old, and there are people who die in your life. And when those things happen, you can begin to fear the future. Notice these symptoms. You begin to fear the future. You begin to worry about things. Maybe you even start getting anxious about your life. Do you feel any of those things? 
the Holy Spirit may, may graciously be revealing these tangible things that you're tempted towards this morning. Praise God. I don't want us to be blind to the reality that these things are only temporary. And if our response to losing them is one of fear, worry, and anxiety, that reveals a problem. And a prescription for you is to memorize the promises of God. Meditate on the scriptures. When you're driving, when you're at work, the times when you're tempted to find security in those very things, think on the word of the Lord. Write it on your heart. Pray and ask God to make it true of you. Even confess those sins to him. Confess those sins to a brother or sister whom you trust. And ask them to help you and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Second question. Do you feel more secure when your relationship with God is measurable? This one is tricky. Because it can teeter on two sides of insecurity. Maybe you're tempted to measure how many good things you've done. Maybe you're tempted to keep track of how bad you aren't, and therefore, that is what makes you right with God. That's where your security is. You're right with God because you've done all these good things. You're not as bad as this person. This is a symptom of eternal insecurity. Or on the flip side, maybe you're tempted to keep a record of your sins. You can't quite forget about them. Every sin you've ever committed comes to mind. You're constantly reminded of them. You can't let go. You can't get over it. So you find yourself trying to make them up to God in some way. This is a form, a symptom of eternal insecurity. They are both forms of pride, of self-righteousness, because in both cases you're trusting for final security in things that you do. Not in what God has already done, not in what he has accomplished, not what he's doing right now on your behalf. You're looking at what you're doing. All of these things that you think are in your control are not. Remind yourself of God's love for you. My prescription for you this morning, remind yourself of God's eternal unchanging love for you and the Lord Jesus. Because if the Lord for eternity has loved his son and we are in his son, the Lord now loves us with the same love. An unchanging love, a perfect love. Good works, or we can call it keeping the law, as these Jews would have understood it, if used as a measuring rod, only serve to show us our need for a perfect savior. We can't trust our works for eternal security. For those of us who trust in Christ, but this is another thing, for those of us who trust in Christ, but we suffer with guilt and shame, remember your great high priest ministers in heaven for you for eternity. And his ministry means complete and total forgiveness for you. You don't have to sit in the insecurity of regret or guilt or shame because Jesus washes that away. The third and final question do you feel more secure when you feel comfortable? Do you feel more secure when you feel comfortable? You may feel this way because it's a common temptation for us. It's a common temptation to associate momentary comfortability with eternal security. These Hebrews were tempted back into what they knew, the good old days, when things were better. In the same way, we can be tempted to think that we are right before God if we are in a comfortable place. Here's some catchphrases that you can 
see symptoms of this. I wish things could be how they used to be. If only things could be like they were then. The Hebrews were tempted to equate comfortability of what they knew to eternal security with God. But we cannot make the same mistake. Whether life gets uncomfortable or it remains comfortable, this life can never give us eternal security, ever. So let's take pre-pandemic 2019. There's a thousand examples we could make, but pre-pandemic 2019. If life continued today and it looks like it did then, we would be no less eternally secure in the Lord Jesus than we are right now in this moment. Post-2020, in the midst of a pandemic. Our eternal security has not changed, though our comfortability has changed. Don't seek security in normalcy or comfortability. Seek it in Jesus. Seek it in our great high priest, who's the mediator of a better covenant, one that we are a part of thanks to his eternal work on our behalf. Look to Jesus. Friends, put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray.